All right. All right, good evening and welcome. We are gonna get started. So good to see everyone tonight. And uh, what is that noise? Oh, okay, all right. So there are um, some name tags going around. There are also some index cards so that uh, if anybody would like to write a question down, um, you could do that. And then towards the end, I'll, I'll collect those before we go into small groups and hopefully we'll have some time and I can try and answer some of those questions. So um, other housekeeping things, we do have some copies of the chapter. If anybody would like a, uh, a copy of the chapter, I have this here. So if you, this is chapters two and three, if anybody wants it, anybody? If there's a, you can show us by a raised hand. Also, uh, we have a, extra copies of books if you didn't get one and you planned it behind you. Over here. And then uh, there's a, I'm printing schedules. So at the end of the night, you can get the schedule and, and you'll see um, what we're doing. So the reason the schedule is important is because we're not going exactly through the book according to these chapters. Does this, does this mic sound weird? It sounds weird to me from up here. Does it sound, huh? Okay, it does feel loud. Um, it just sounds like kind of boomy and not, not clear, but I tend to be hyper analytical just a little bit. Um, what, what we're doing is we're kind of jumping around because there's two parts. So we did, we did chapter one last week, we're doing chapter two and three this week, but we're not doing chapter four and five next time. So anyway, we'll, we'll get you the schedule at the end of the evening, maybe during group time, we'll, uh, we'll pass the schedule out. All right, well, let's jump in. Lots to cover in these two chapters, lots of really, really good stuff. So let, let me open us in prayer. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We learned last week that you have disclosed yourself in Holy Scripture. You've revealed yourself and you have spoken. And oh, how we're thankful for that. We're not left to our own imaginations to think up what you're like and who you are, but you have revealed yourself in the Bible. And we pray tonight as we talk about that, that we would, we would see you for who you are and that our hearts would find joy and encouragement and delight in looking at you and thinking about you and all that you are and how much we need you, God. So uh, may it have an impact on our hearts and may that trans transfer to our actual lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of our favorite quotes in our house is uh, what we, we heard, Daniette and I heard before we had kids, um, John Piper in a sermon said, do you want to say it? To be a mother. <laughs> kind of like that. Yeah, that's how he said it. To be a mother, you must be a theologian, Piper says. Um, now, that's, that can be an intimidating statement on one hand. On the other hand, every mother is already a theologian. Did you know that? Before you even crack the book, you're already theologizing with your children and family. And perhaps some of us here grew up uh, hearing less than biblical theologies about God. And um, so it doesn't mean we're good theologians, but to be a theologian is to think and articulate certain things about God. And, um, and so we're all doing that all the time. 
And um, even unbelievers do that. They have ideas about who God is and what he's like. And the question is, what separates that um, from a, an imaginary, you know, an imaginary being, some, some uh, imaginary being? Or how do we know that whatever idea somebody has in their head is the actual God? How can you even know that? Um, well, as Christians, we say that, that those ideas should line up with the Bible. And to the degree that they do, then we're closer to the actual true God. And to the degree that they disagree with the Bible, we've strayed into just our imagination. So I would like to think of God as being like a blah, 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 you know, like kind of like my grandmother, you know, and like we, we have our own, what people do is, even though God said he's made us in his image, we try to make God into our own image. And the Bible says, no, God is categorically different. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight in this chapter. Feel free, I forgot to say this last week, feel free to turn your chairs around. I know they're big and clunky, but uh, I don't want anybody getting a crick in their neck. So uh, feel free to spin your chair around if it's more comfortable for you to do so. All right, in the chapter, love the way this chapter begins. This is page 21. So if y'all want to look at this with me, yeah. Page 21 says... Just as scripture is the highest source of information about itself, God is the highest source of information about himself. That makes sense, for if there were, was a higher source of information about God, then God wouldn't be God. Therefore, it is important that any study of God look at what God says about himself found on the pages of scripture. So that is the foundational Thing. There's not some other authority out there that tells us who God is. God tells us who he is. He's the one that stands in the position to even be able to do so. Um, so as we go through this, feel free to uh, ask questions. We're going to just move through his outline. So the first one, God exists. In the Bible, God is assumed. He's not explained. Very first chapter, in the beginning, God. It doesn't explain how he got there. So maybe you've been asked, this is an example of how mothers are always wearing the theologian hat. Is I, I come home often and Danielle says, let me tell you what the boys asked today. You know, and I like some deep theological question because man, moms, you're on the front line of that stuff. You're, you're with children all the time and their, their little minds are working. So where did God come from? Who, who made God? If God, we, we say God has always been there, but how did he get there? So all of those questions have a fundamental assumption that, that is erroneous in the question. Do you know what it is? Where did God come from? How did he get there? Yeah, it assumes that he had a starting point. Where did, where did he come from? Um, meaning there was a time when he was not, and then there was a time when he was. That assumes beginning. So from the get-go, the question is flawed. Um, it's like I, I asked the, uh, any, any of y'all younger girls like taking algebra right now? What happens, anybody can answer, what happens if you divide a number by zero? Undefined. Yes, very good. Very good. Yeah, it's not zero. It, it basically, if you put it in your calculator, your calculator kind of goes like, it just doesn't work. The, the, the question itself is, is contradictory on its own terms. There is no, like in other words, 
something divided by zero, you can't answer that question because the question is flawed. Um, so where did God come from? Who created God is a flawed question to begin with because it assumes God was created. He's not creation. He is creator. He creates. No one creates him. He doesn't arrive on the scene. He has always been. Um, and so we, we see this in the Bible with phrases like from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Um, everything else in the created order um, has a beginning, has it, it in, in secular ideas, it's that the universe has, has simply all, always existed. But no, that ascribes a sense of deity to the universe. It can't have always existed. And in fact, um, depending on which branch of science, so like astrophysics has made it very clear that th the universe had a definite beginning. Um, so the idea of infinite regress is not possible. That's, you don't even have to be a Christian to argue for that. All right, so we're, we're in the weeds on that one. There's, there's more if you wanna get into that. But in the natural world, it's not just that it had a beginning. It's not just that it was created. The natural world speaks forth about the existence of God. So look at Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one, verse 19 and 20 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Now the them in this context is unbelievers. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How has he shown it to them? His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So God's existence and power and divine nature, the, the concept that God is, is built into the very fact that creation is and that someone put it there and God is the one that put it there. And so um, this is called general revelation that who God is can be clearly perceived in nature. Uh, generally, God has revealed his existence through nature. Um, but to understand God rightly and, and what he is like, which is the chapter we're getting into, we, we need scripture and we need faith. Faith is a necessary component to know and understand God's existence truly as he's revealed in scripture. So we have to be careful not to say, first, show me the evidence. And if I can weigh all of the evidence, then I will have faith. I get that. I'm kind of wired that way. And that, that works in most things in life. But when it comes to God, there's a, there's a prerequisite faith that is there. Um, so it was Augustine who said, um, I, I believe in order that I might understand. So think about that. So where, where faith is not, understanding is going to be impeded. Um, there's, a, there's an assumed foundational faith to say, I believe God, God, I believe you're there. You exist. Now show me what you're like. And as we approach God with some measure of faith, God is eager to reveal himself. This is why Jesus referred to faith as it can be as tiny as a mustard seed. It's not the quantity that matters, but the object of that faith, what is your faith in? 
And as we bring that mustard seed faith, put in the right thing, God shows up. God reveals himself. So faith is a necessary component to know and understand God's existence truly as he's revealed in scripture. Next, God is knowable. Love this, love this concept. Um, God exists in a way that is knowable because he has revealed himself through scripture in both what is written and in what he has done in his redemptive acts. Um, he is knowable. Now, that doesn't mean he is exhaustively knowable because our minds are finite. We have limited capacities. Some of our brains are very limited. Ask my wife and she'll be honest about how limited my brain is and my memory and everything like that. So we have limitations up here. God is an infinite being of whom there is no limitations. There's no way we can contain infinity in finite brains. Now, some people have taken that to say, therefore, we can't really know anything about God. I mean, we have a book, we talked about this last week, we have a book that's 2000 years old. I mean, that, that at least reflects what people back then thought about God. But I mean, you can't really know any, you can't know God really, because after all, we're just people and he's infinite. And so there's just such this chasm between us. We're all just kind of guessing. I mean, let's just be honest. And, um, and it can even be put with sort of a religious spin on it. Like we should just be humble and admit that we don't really know what God is like. So this is an attack against Orthodox Christianity to say, you know, Orthodox Christianity wants you to think that God is a certain way. But come on, I mean, let's be honest. We don't know what God's like. We have a book, yeah, but we can't really know him because he's infinite and he's huge and he's vast and our minds are so limited. And it's like taking some right things but going in a wrong direction with them, which is exactly how Satan works to deceive people. So is God knowable? To what degree can we know him? You know, um, if you've been to Carlsbad Caverns, uh, I love going there because as you're, the deeper you go, you're just encountering more and more beauty and awe. And you're just, I'm always just blown away by how far under the ground we are. I'm like, we're, 75 stories into the earth right now <laughs> when you get to the uh the great room i think it's called it kind of at the bottom of the cave and you, the, the trail is 0.6 miles or something and, and you walk around that area the big room or whatever it's called um it's beautiful it's it's vast you're, you're taking it in you're you're blown away and then there's one point where there's a a little fence here and they say now the cave actually keeps going and they've explored it pretty far, but they've never found the end of it. And so you can, you can bask in awe and wonder at what is revealed about Carlsbad, but your, your depth of awe and worship is just expanded when you realize, and it keeps going. <laughs> you know. And so God is certainly knowable. And, and in the Christian life, um, we can, using the Carlsbad analogy, you can take the natural entrance and stop 10 or 15 stories down and say, eh, okay, you know. But, man, there's just so much more about God in Scripture that we will spend our entire lives digging into Scripture and studying it and constantly being blown away over and over and over at the vastness of who God is. He is definitely knowable, and yet at some point, he's infinite. He, there's more to him than we 
can conceive in our own minds. But what we need to know about him is revealed in scripture. Um, everything we need to know about him is there. Jesus, in fact, prayed in John 17, 3, that we would know him personally. Um, and so this should just invite us to pursue him. He's the God who speaks and reveals himself to us in the scriptures, and he is knowable. Don't buy into the lie that because we're finite and he's infinite, we can't really know him. We can't exhaustively know him, but we can rightly know him. And that's a big difference. It's an important difference. We don't have to be guessing what he's like. We can rightly know him. Next, God is independent. Um, now, in theology, there are two words that you may encounter a lot um, when we talk about the attributes of God. And I think the ladies did a study on attributes, right? So communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. Anybody want to take a stab at what those mean? I will tell you that incommunicable attributes does not mean the things that we can't talk about. So what does anybody know what communicable, communicable, like able to be communicated? Communicable and incommunicable. Yeah, Aaron. Yeah, good. Yeah. So she said uh, the communicable attributes are the ones that God, the, the word would be communicates to us. Now, not, not communicate like this, with your mouth communicate, but he, he communicates in the sense of he, he transfers and calls us to embody these attributes. So we're called to be these things because he's given them to us so that we can be them. So communicated in that sense. Um, yeah, so what would be some examples of that? Love, yep, what else? Kindness, compassion, good, good. So incommunicable would be those attributes that he doesn't share with us. So what would be some of those? Omniscience, yep. Being independent, Being independent. yeah, very good, very good. What, somebody else say something over here? Omnipotent, yeah, we're not all powerful, um, despite what... My seven-year-old thinks, you know, yeah, uh, we, uh, omnipresent, that's another one, good. So when we talk about independence, as Amy pointed out, this is one of those attributes that God does not share with us. From the beginning, um, we have, oh, I'm so anxious to use a whiteboard, but I need to remember to clean it next time. We have, um, we have creator and creature. The creator-creature distinction is so important. As you read your Bible, just let that be lodged in your brain as a category. The creator-creature distinction. God, is, God alone is creator. Everything else is created, is creaturely. So when we talk about independence, we're talking about an attribute that uniquely belongs to God. Another way to con convey this is with these words, necessary and contingent beings. Um, a necessary being is one that exists necessarily, apart from anything else, one whose non-existence cannot be conceived. He necessarily exists. We don't necessarily exist. Now, I'm not using that the way we use it colloquially, like, well, not necessarily. I'm not saying I don't necessarily exist. No, I mean, as a necessity, it's a, it's a technical term, necessarily. Um, as a necessity, we don't exist. In other words, we could cease to exist and the universe goes on. That can't be said about God. Um, 
you know, right? Why aren't we trying to teach our kids? The universe doesn't revolve around you. It doesn't depend on you. Uh, you're given good theology when you tell your kids that. Only God is necessary. And he is the only one apart from whom nothing can, it can exist. The breath we take, the air we breathe, our, the, the beating of our hearts. I mean, I remember being a cardiac nurse and studying uh, what it takes for one heartbeat to, to take place. And this calcium chain reaction and calcium potassium chain and all these things that fire, all these, there's so many things that they can, they can look at and say, well, that's, that's how it's beating, but we don't know why it just keeps doing it and what kicked it off to begin with and what decides it's done. There's just still such an element of mystery there. I mean, to, that our hearts keep beating, that there's air with just the right percentage of oxygen blended with nitrogen and carbon dioxide in the air to keep us alive is God, is God showing us that we are not independent. We are contingent. We depend on him. Only he is necessary. A contingent being is one whose existence depends on another, uh, like everything except God. So God is necessary. He doesn't need us, but we need him and we're dependent on him. Um, in Acts 17, verse 24 and 25, it says, the, Paul is addressing the Areopagus. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. You can almost hear Paul laugh, as though God needs anything. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need anything since he himself gives to all mankind, life and breath and everything. He's the giver. He is necessary. Everything else is contingent. And so our, our very existence is dependent on him. Um, that puts everything else in subjection, subjection to him. All people answerable to him. I mean, think about it. What would it mean if one molecule in the, in the whole universe existed apart from God, that there was one molecule that God couldn't control. Might that be the molecule that rises up and overthrows God and actually defeats him? Could be. So either he is sovereign and all-powerful and in control of everything, or he's not. And even if that one molecule did exist, we would have to ask where it came from. I mean, after all, it would have to be contingent on something. God is the creator and everything else is created. And the Bible simply tells us he is. He has no first cause. He is the first cause. He is independent from anything in creation and distinct from everything in creation. All right. That said, he grants value and significance to his creation and to people in particular who are made in his image. This is a wonderful truth to just take in. Look at page 23 right in the middle of the page, it says, however, though God is completely independent, he also chooses to give us value and significance. He allows us to be important to him. That's just so good. I was thinking about this yesterday. You know, like on one hand, it's true when we say, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your worship. Um, yes, but we have to be careful even how we say that. Because it, it's true that God doesn't need us in the necessary contingent aspect, but God has determined 
that humankind, human beings are the crown of his creation and that those whom he saves, he delights in. He calls them sons and daughters. It's not like people are just eh, like in, totally insignificant to God. We want to maintain God's independence and at the same time be blown away by his imminence that he comes as a baby. He's called God with us, Emmanuel. He is present. He's with us. He cares for us. He, he dies on a cross to take our penalty on himself. So, so any value that we have is given to us by him. So indeed, all creation glorifies and brings him joy. As he says in Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who's called by my name, I created for my glory. And Zephaniah says, God will rejoice over us with gladness and exalt over us with loud singing. Although God does not need us, he allows us to bring joy to his heart, joy that results in loud singing. And that is a sign of true significance. Just well said, Grudem. Just well said. You know, just other theologians are not going to take it that, to that point. And, and he's just, thank you, sir. <laughs> so next, God is unchangeable. Theologians refer to the unchangeableness of God as God's immutability. If you want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 46. The doctrine of, while you're going there, the doctrine of God's immutability is very important. Um, immutability means that, as, as he says in this chapter, God does not change. God does not change. So just think about that for a moment. The contrast between being God who simply is and never changes and becoming someone who's always changing, that, that difference is the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeking rest and satisfaction, finding, you know, even, even science, molecules, planets, stars, um, everything is trying to attain a state of equilibrium, but left to itself spins off into greater chaos. Um, it, there is no immutability. There's no unchangeableness in the created order. Everything is, in a sense, moving. But yet God, God is unchangeable. And we find our rest and our stability in him alone because only he is pure being. And in him, there is no becoming. When, when everything else is shifting around us, when relationships around us are shifting and changing and we're being sold out and hurt and offended and every, everybody's going in different directions, God is unchangeable. And we find our rest in him alone. That's why in scripture, God is often called the rock. In Isaiah 46, verse nine through 11, it says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God determines to do something. There is no changing of his mind. There's no going back on his word. There's no second guessing himself. Um, now, as soon as we say that, that might raise a question in your mind about certain things in the Bible. 
as well, right? So what would that, what, what does that make you wonder if we say God never changes? Wh which one? Okay. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, so that's one. Uh, Noah, because it says that God, remember the word? Different translations use different words. Um, yeah, he's sorry that he had made mankind. He repented. Even I think King James says he repented that he had made man. Now, that, that's not repentance the way we conceive of repentance in Christianity. Um, but in that King James English, it's, it's simply a changing of the mind. So, um, yeah, there, there are times where it seems Nineveh, God says, go in and tell them, I'm going to destroy the entire city. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to do it. Well, he goes and he tells them that, and they all repent, and God says, okay, I'm not going to do it. Well, wait, did God change his mind? So that's an important question. Page 24 said very well. Even so, there are places in scripture that seem at first to contradict God's unchangeableness, especially related to his purposes and promises. For example, God did not punish Nineveh as promised when the people repented. But these instances should be understood as true expressions of God's present attitude or intention related to the specific situation. I think that's well said. So he goes on, as the situation changes, God's attitude or expression of an intention will change as well. So God is always opposed to sin. And so Nineveh in its sinful state is worthy of judgment and destruction. And God responds to repentance when people repent and decides to grant his love and grace. So it's not that he changed his mind, but his attitude to the specific situation changed as that situation changed. Um, and so he, he goes on and explains next paragraph, God's unchangeableness does not mean he will, act, he will not act nor feel differently in response to different situations, for he would hardly be good or just if he did not respond differently to sin than to repentance and righteousness, nor does unchangeableness mean God doesn't act or feel emotions. In fact, one of the ways God demonstrates he is God and not a man is by not executing his burning anger and destroying a people. Instead, as his heart recoils within him and his compassion grows warm and tender, God withholds his judgment and says, I will not come in wrath. A um, lot to think about in there. So that's a, that's a big subject, God's unchangeableness. Um, so let's, let's leave it at that and move on to some of these others. God is eternal. Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God has existed in eternity past, and he himself created time. So that's an important category to think about, that um, God exists outside of space and time. He, he's not bound by space and time. He exists outside of it because he created space and time. So there's not some galaxy where we can go and we'll find him, except in the sense that we will find him there just like we'll find him here because he's everywhere at once. But he, he doesn't inhabit um, the galaxy as part of its contained structure. He created it. So he transcends it. He exists outside of it. And he is eternal. Again, bearing in mind that the entire created order 
is created and thus it has a beginning it has finitude it has limits it's not infinite only god is infinite um, this means he sees all events equally at the same time just think about that he's not watching history unfold the way we are we just read he sees the the end from the beginning he sees it all he sees all events equally at the same time and he sees those events happening within time as well so he sees all of that another thing that he sees that we could we deduce from scripture is that and we especially see this in jesus's ministry is that god sees all possible outcomes even those that will not actually turn out to be so think about that god knows all possible worlds so if there's like if you think well if this happens and then that's going to like flip me over into the parallel universe and th then we're going to be on like parallel universe B and this other well, now we're on another timeline. I mean, if that's how your mind thinks, if you're going Marvel there, um, God sees all possible timelines happening and he knows what could be. And, and he, he has determined to sovereignly orchestrate the events in the timeline that he has established he knows all possible worlds all possible outcomes all possible timelines which means the one where you find yourself is the one where god wants you it's the one that he's determined for you and as a loving father his determination of your timeline of your story of your history is his good for you god is eternal a wonderful truth god is omnipresent meaning that god is not limited uh to to space he is everywhere at once omnipresent he's present everywhere in his creation but he remains distinct from it we like to distinguish between god's omnipresence and his manifest presence so he's everywhere at once he's he's in the the most wicked city on the planet he's there in the middle of all the sin in a sense because he's everywhere at once but he is uniquely manifested when his people gather to sing and submit themselves to the preaching of the word. So we love God's omnipresence, but God is particularly present in a manifest way when his people come together. And he manifests that presence in unique and personal ways to his, to his people. Some of these others are gonna move more quickly. Um, God is spirit and invisible. Um, we, we may touch on this uh, when we get to who is Christ, so I'm not going to spend too much time here um, that this question came up in the in the men's meeting about God being spirit. By the way, when we say God in English and when your Bible says God in the New Testament, the Greek word is uh, theos. And so theos most often is a reference to God, the father. Um, so, yes, Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Um, but most of the time, that's a reference to God the Father. So when we say God is spirit, God is invisible, then you say, well, what about Jesus? He was visible. Yes. Um, so what we're saying is God as Father um, is invisible. Or you might say the triune God as Trinity is invisible. But God manifests himself when he takes on flesh, which is what we'll talk about when we get to the chapter on who is Christ. So hopefully that just kind of piqued your interest and raised some questions in your mind, and we'll get to those later. All right. God is omniscient, knowledge. Nothing surprises God. He knows all things actual and possible. We talked about that. Um, God is wise, truthful, and good. 
God is love. God is holy. We're just moving through these from the chapter. By the way, holiness should really be seen in one sense as the sum of all his attributes. So you may have heard it said, you, you shine the white light of holiness through a prism and you get all of the colors of his attributes. Um, this, this word holy means that God is distinct and separate from his creation. He's in another category. He's perfect and pure. He is one to whom there is no equal. This is so important. God is not a better version of us. He's not just like a souped up, supercharged, superpower human that's just a lot better than us. He's in a completely different category. Again, coming back to necessary and contingent, creature and creator, um, limitations versus infinity. He's categorically other than us. And that all of that is captured in this idea of holy. He is distinct. He's separate from his creation. He stands apart from him. So when you start to think of holiness that way, it makes sense that God says, so be holy as I am holy. In other words, be distinct in how you live your life. Be set apart. Be a reflection of God's holiness. Holiness being a communicable attribute of God, something he calls us to. Next, God is righteous, just, and jealous. And God is wrathful towards sin. As a just, just judge, he can't let sin go unpunished. Sin distorts the image of God in his creation. It mars the glory of God. Therefore, he's jealous and filled with wrath towards sin. All sin must be punished, but wonder of wonders, God allows for a substitute. That he accepts the payment of his son, who himself is eternal, to pay the price for sins that creatures, us, should have paid. Now, to think of the impossibility of paying your own way. Man, I, I want to go off on this, but I guess we better save it for a, a chapter on atonement. Yeah. Um, okay, I'll give it real quick. Just can't pass it up. God, our sin, though, though it's coming from finite people, our sin transgresses an infinite God, which means the penalty for that sin is infinite. There's no finite payment available to pay for a sin that requires an infinite penalty. Infinite penalty because the sin is against an infinite God. We can't pay it ourselves. The moment we try, we, that's why hell is eternal, because it will take all infinity. It will take all eternity because that's the payment that sin requires, an eternal payment. We can't pay for it in this lifetime. We can't pay for it ourselves. We can't make up for it with good works. So what happens, though, if God says, but there is a way for the eternal payment to be paid on behalf of finite creatures? Jesus himself, preexistent for all eternity, the eternal one, is the only one uniquely, uniquely qualified to satisfy the eternal wrath of God against our sin. It's, that's a long, complicated, deeply theological, worship-inducing way to say Jesus is the only way. 
He's the only way. He is eternal, and he is the only one qualified to pay the eternal price for sin. And, and the, the penalty that we should pay is, in fact, eternal. So options. You can spend eternity in hell paying it yourself. Or you can come to one who himself is eternal and who himself satisfies the eternal wrath of God because he himself is eternal and can do it. We can. He can. And so we can come to him and God accepts that sacrifice as satisfying the justice of God, the, the just requirement of the penalty of sin. Jesus does it. So he alone can save. That's why truer, deeper theological words are, there, there are no truer, deeper theological words than something as simple as Jesus paid it all. That's a mouthful. That's the tip of a massive theological iceberg. All right, save that for atonement. God wills what he will and God has freedom. We talked about some of this. I'm not gonna go into that again. God is omnipotent. He's able to do all his holy will. Now let me throw this out there. Are there things God cannot do? Yes, no, okay. Can't sin, okay. Yeah, change. Right, right, right. Yeah, what else? Can't lie. Yeah, good. Yep, anything else? Yeah, these are, these are all right and good answers. I mean, one way to sum it up, he can't deny his character. Um, somebody said he can't lie. We could say he can't be tempted by evil. Um, the New Testament tells us that. God, here's one thing God can't do. He can't cease to exist, right? Um, it, like, just cease to exist, just cease being God. Um, God's infinite power is qualified by his other attributes. So when we say he's, he's all-powerful, it's qualified by his other attributes. The exercise of God's power all over over all of his creation is what we mean by this word sovereignty. So um, that's an important one. So on the question, like, can God make a rock so big that even he can't move it? Um, so, you know, have you ever heard that little conundrum? Um, so I, I go back to, uh, that's like dividing a number by zero, because the question has a false premise that he can't move. So there is, there is a non-answer. It is undefined. Um, <laughs> um, but there are things that God can't do because they're contradictory to his nature. He can't lie. He can't cease to exist. He can't decide to become dependent and shift from creator into cre creation or something like that. Good. God is perfect, blessed, and beautiful. Um, perfect meaning he's lacking in nothing. Blessed meaning delights in himself and his completeness. Beautiful, he is the sum of all desirable qualities. Such a great definition uh, from the chapter. And he's the ultimate longing of all our desires. And in all of these things, God is unity. Look at page 36. God is a unity. It says, although some of God's attributes may seem to be emphasized more than others, it is important to realize that God is unified in all his attributes. He's not more of one attribute than another. He's not divided into parts. 
He's not one attribute at one point in history and another attribute at another time. He is fully and completely every attribute, even those not mentioned in this short chapter is what he's saying um, at every time. So speaking of unity, that takes us into the Trinity. Now in the men's group, I had to do the Trinity in five minutes and it's looking like I'm gonna have to do that in this one as well. What's that? Good luck, yeah. Um, yeah, what is the Trinity? Trinity um, means three in oneness. The term is, the word itself is not actually found in the Bible, but it is a word that summarizes the Bible's teaching that God is both three persons and yet one God. So one in essence, distinct in function is an important way to understand it. Um, can you think of examples in the Old Testament where we see, if not a distinct trinity, at least the idea that uh, of a plurality in God? Can you think of Oh, yeah. 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 Right. And yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In in Genesis. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember the reference either. But yeah. What else? Other other things. Uh, other phrases or words that you might see in the Old Testament that at least tips you off that. There's there's a sense of plurality in God. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Yeah. Elohim. Yeah. So the one of the words for God in the Bible is is Elohim. El is a Hebrew word for God. So like Beth El, House of God. Um, there all, all the words Hebrew words that end in El have God in it, but Elohim. The, the im ending is always plural. So yeah, even, even a name for God has plurality in the word itself. Good, yep. The, in the creation account, you have God saying, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, one of us. Uh, come, let us go down and confuse their language in the Tower of Babel. The book has different, um, different examples. So. Good, that's the next question. So what about in the New Testament? Jesus' is baptism. No, you're good, that's good. Help me move along. Um, it, in the baptism, the, there's a voice from heaven. The spirit descends like a dove. Jesus comes up out of the water. There's this beautiful Trinitarian picture. Um, the New Testament is just filled with Trinitarian expressions in the letters, especially. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, theos, meaning father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Just a, a closing greeting that's very Trinitarian. Um, now, the Trinity is, uh, again, states that God is three persons. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. I, I appreciated, Danette and I were talking about this. I appreciated in the chapter how he points out that all earthly analogies fall short because there's nothing in the created order that you can say, well, you know, the Trinity is kind of like an egg, and there's like the shell, and the white, and the yellow, and there's, so there's three parts, but it's all one egg. Nope, that's not what the Trinity's like. It's not, because the shell is not the yolk. Um, there are three distinct parts, 
that happen to land in one location, but you can't say all three parts are one in essence. So there's, there's no earthly analogy to capture the Trinity. We have to conceive of it rather abstractly and understand it how scripture gives it to us, which is in terms of function, that's where we see distinction. So the father sends the son, the, send, the son sends the spirit. The spirit obeys the father and does what he tells him. Um, the son is obeying the father. Um, the father is elsewhere is said to send the spirit as well. There's, there's functional differences. Um, Jesus dies on the cross. The Holy Spirit doesn't. The Holy Spirit fills the, the disciples in the upper room at Pentecost. Jesus doesn't descend on them like tongues of fire and fill them all at once. It's the spirit that's doing it. So in terms of function, we see these distinctions. But in, in the way the, th the three persons of the Godhead are discussed biblically, they are, there is one God. They are, they are e all equally God. There's not one that's more God or less God. Um, so they are distinct in function, but one in essence. Um, the chapter does a very good job explaining that. And I think I'm probably going to stop there. All right. Any questions? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. Yep. Here, here's one. It's important for a lot of reasons. Here's one reason is our redemption. You know, we can, act in an effort to preserve like justification by faith and the gospel, uh, gospel centrality, we can let the accent fall too heavily on the work that Jesus has done. But do you realize that our redemption as believers is a Trinitarian effort? The, the force of the triune God is behind your salvation and your redemption. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. It's not just that Jesus said, all right, I'll take care of it. Um, Father's kind of upset about how things are. Let me go. I'll handle it. Just chill out and everything's going to be fine. Um, no, your redemption is triune. The, the triune God is behind our redemption. And when, when we neglect that, then, then we end up neglecting the aspects of, of God as father. And so as father, he is wise in his care and his governance of us and his sovereignty. Jesus, we, we could neglect Jesus as son in the way he responds to the father. And so what does... What does submission look like? What does godly, whole, good, healthy submission look like? Um, we can neglect the spirit uh, as the God, God showing up as comforter. I will send another, the comforter, and he will, he will comfort you. The spirit's called that. The spirit equips and empowers for mission and ministry. So everything in the Christian life, and in particular, our redemption as believers, the, the force of the triune God, the intentionality from all eternity of the triune God is behind his intent to save people. And so uh, the Trinity is, is absolutely key to understanding both the unity of the different members of the Trinity, the unity of the Godhead, and, and that, that unity is expressed in our redemption. And then you could pan out from there and say, as well as the fact that history is leading up to a particular destination, the consummation of all things, when all wrongs will be done away with, everything will be made right, God's people will be brought home, we'll enjoy eternity with God in heaven forever. The triune God is ensuring that that is happening. How? 
by God sovereignly reigning, by Jesus dying on the cross, mediating on behalf of us with the Father, standing as our mediator, by the Spirit empowering us and equipping us for mission and ministry to get the job done so that Jesus can come back. So the, the triune God is just behind it all. And so that's a couple of reasons why it's important. Okay. So these are good things. I want to encourage you to go to your tables and um, discuss some of these things and, and draw out more of the truths that are here in the chapter and how it spoke to you. So um, yeah, and then Jan will come back and close this. All right. Sorry, it went a little bit long. We're still trying to figure out how to manage the time and, and all that with this. So, All right. Jan, you can give instructions on moving folks around or whatever.